are listening to the podcast of Trinity Grace Church Williamsburg. Our longing is to see heaven come to earth in Brooklyn. For more information on our church, please visit tgcwilliamsburg.com. Nicole Johnson and I am a community group leader and the leader of congregation care. Our teaching text this morning is from Matthew 27 verses 62 through 66. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive that the deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, friends. Uh, it's good to at least be seen by you. Um, a week ago today, the podcast, The Daily, released an episode about the many industries in our city that are shutting down. And there was one couple in particular that they interviewed, a uh, young married couple. Both of them uh, are restaurant servers, and they have an 18-month-old baby. And so with one announcement in one presidential briefing, suddenly all of their family income was cut off for who knows how long. Now just after that, they brought on the owner of both of the restaurants, a really accomplished, prestigious chef who owns a restaurant group in lower Manhattan, and he wept. He wept on air, talking about the experience of gathering all of his employees from all of his restaurants and telling them, I can't pay you and I don't know when I'll be able to again. And so the really high-powered businessman who's trying to keep his investments afloat and the young couple who's just trying to come up with enough money to make ends meet to pay for diapers and baby food and rent are in the same position, helplessly waiting. And while I was listening to that story, I thought about Saturday. Because there's only been one day in the last 2,000 years when we can be sure that no one on the face of the earth believed that Jesus was alive. And it was a Saturday. We call it Holy Saturday, and I've always found that a bit confusing. My best guess is that Holy Week kind of just got stuck to the name because it does fall in between Good Friday when we remember Jesus' death and Easter Sunday when we remember his resurrection. But more appropriate titles might be Confusing Saturday, Lost Saturday, Absent Saturday, Lonely Saturday, because it wasn't holy in any sense of the word. The New York Times released a photo series titled New York Was Not Designed for Emptiness, and I want to show you the cover photo, but then I want to take you through a few of these images, and if you live here in the city, these will be familiar to you. The first one is of a playground in the West Village looking like an absolute ghost town. 
Then there's the Staten Island Ferry, party of one. The next photo is of the subway. When is the last time you had a subway car entirely to yourself? Ever? Here's the BQE. I've never traveled a mile on the BQE without being in standstill traffic, and there's one car. But the last photo in the series was my favorite one. Greenwood Cemetery, Brooklyn's iconic graveyard. What an image. Overlooking Manhattan from the south, where you can see the river splitting both ways, and yet this man walking through the graveyard considering the fragility of life, which is suddenly kicking down the door of every New Yorker. And I flipped through those, and I thought, you know, those photos are going to be ones that my grandkids look at in history textbooks. And those are Saturday pictures. When the noise has gone silent and the constant buzz all around us is a low hum at best, the city that never sleeps, all of the sudden hibernating, and all of us, people that are so used to passing our days with appointments and running from this to that and hellos and goodbyes, are now very, very alone. That's what Saturday was like. Because a week before, Jesus' followers are waving palm branches, the coronation of a king who's come to overpower Rome. How did we get so lucky to get in on the ground floor of the kingdom that's never going to end? How are we the early adopters of the everlasting kingdom? And then on Friday, they watched him die. It's amazing all that can change in a week. And on Sunday, they're going to watch him rise, but it's not Sunday yet. It's Saturday. It's that empty space wedged between the death of the God that you thought you knew and the introduction to the God who's better than you ever could have imagined. When I was 22, I moved to New York, and my first roommate was my only friend, and I can remember sitting up late at night with him in this one conversation where he got uncharacteristically honest. Now, you've got to understand a bit of his backstory. His parents were really good people, but they weren't believers. They had no real interest in God, certainly no interest in church. But a friend of his invited him to this thing called youth group, and he liked it. It was different in a good way. And then a couple months into showing up there, he had an encounter with Jesus that he could not deny that changed his life forever. And now I'm sitting across from that kid who's now in his early 30s at this point, and his faith is hanging by a thread. And he said something like this to me, my experience is that God is present so long as your life plays out according to the evangelical script, right? Married by 25, 2.5 kids, stable job, predictable journey. If that's your story, the church is kind to you. But if that's not your story, then the church feels like an awkward fit, like you're still hanging around, but everyone's moved on without anyone telling you, and you get tired of asking God the same questions and getting the same silence. I guess it's this simple for me. I fell for a God that I was told was knocking on the door of my heart. And honestly, I'm just not so sure I believe in that God anymore. That's a Saturday story. It's deafening silence when you're longing for an answer. It's the pain of God's absence before the, the breakthrough of his reintroduction. It's the loss of the God that I thought I knew without meeting the God who really is. That is the pain of Holy Saturday. And to be fair, we should have known that there would be a Saturday. I mean, the Bible is full of three-day stories. When Abraham is terrified he'll have to sacrifice Isaac, an angel appears and offers a ram in his place 
on the third day. Joseph's brothers get thrown into prison, and they're released from prison on the third day. Rahab hides the Israelite spies and tells them that they'll be freed into safety on the third day. Day. Esther fasts and prays against the genocide, and then the king finally changes his mind. Join me from home on this one on the third day. So, look, God's a bit of a one trick pony. I mean, he's really only got one kind of story. He just never gets tired of telling it and keeps finding new people and new places to tell that same story within, and still no one sees it coming. Well, almost nobody, at least. There is one often forgotten prophet near the end of the Old Testament named Hosea who writes this. Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us that we may live in his presence. So here's the pattern. There's a conflict, a tragedy, some kind of inescapable trouble, and there's deliverance coming on the third day, but in between on the second day. There's nothing, just absence, just silence, just waiting. And so the obvious question is, why Saturday? I mean, why isn't every three-day story just a two-day story? Why this day in between? I shared an Uber ride with a friend from this church community on the way to a birthday party, and he said, hey man, I got to tell you something. And he had this look in his eye that I've become quite familiar with during this stage of my life. And so I knew what he was going to say next before he even said it, but I just let him have his moment anyway. We're pregnant. And they had waited a safe amount of time to tell me this because I had had this Uber ride with this guy before. And then it ended in a miscarriage. A little life was forming in her womb, and so they made all the calls to parents, and they got all the excitement going, and they talked privately about, boy or girl, what names do you like and dislike? What's life going to be like with one more life in our family? And then all that got taken from them before it ever started. They had already lived through that. And so just to be extra conservative, they had waited an extra long time to tell me we're pregnant again. And she told me I could tell you tonight, but look, we're not going to tell anyone else for a long time because we want to be safe. So the only people on earth who know this right now are you, me, her, and Emilio. That was the name of the Uber driver who was clearly eavesdropping. And if we were in a room together, that would have killed. So I saw her later that night. And I hugged her, and I said really discreetly so that no one else would notice, congratulations. And the next time I saw the two of them was six days later as we prayed through tears of grief, not of joy, because there was another miscarriage. The life I daydreamed about and planned and then a a positive pregnancy test, the life that I imagined and got giddy about was snatched away from me. This little life was taken before it ever had a chance. That's the true story of a particular person from this church community that gave me permission to share it. But that story is not unique to her. I mean, in a young church like ours, there are few funerals, but there are plenty of miscarriages. And I will never forget sitting on the back row of a miscarriage memorial service a few years back that we held as I watched family after family from this church grieve what they thought they weren't allowed to grieve or at least had to grieve in silence and in private away from community. Something got taken from me 
And I don't have a bow to tie on top of that story. This story of mine doesn't resolve. Not yet, anyway. All I've got for sure is silence, absence. Where are you, God? Where are you now that I really need you? That's a Saturday story. I was walking down the sidewalk on a sunny sunny afternoon in early spring, and the city was so alive. It was one of those days in the springtime in New York where every cafe has every outdoor table packed with people talking and laughing and enjoying each other's company. New York has this way of reminding us every spring why it's worth it to live here during the winter. And so I'm walking down the sidewalk on that kind of spring afternoon, and then my phone buzzes, and it's Luke. Now, men don't call men just to talk, so the first thing that runs through my mind is, why is he calling me? I picked up. The wedding's off. His voice broke right after he said that part, and I just waited for him to collect himself. DeAndre and I have decided to call off the wedding. So I asked the obvious question uh, that you have to ask on the other side of that kind of phone call, why? And he explained to me that he had broken her trust in a way that wasn't reparable, not quickly anyway, certainly not reparable with, with an end date on it that they had to accomplish it by. And so he was calling me because I was the pastor that was meant to officiate the ceremony and he had to let me know, but I knew that I was just one of the many calls that he was making again and again and again. There were groomsmen and grandparents and old friends from college and every single one of them was going to ask the same question I asked, why? And he'd have to explain over and over and over, I had a plan I had hopes and dreams, and you were in every last one of them. The life that I thought I had, the one that I thought for sure was guaranteed the day we agreed on it, has just died right before my eyes. And there is no reason at this present moment to expect resurrection. That's a Saturday story. I was in a security line at LaGuardia at 4.45 a.m. on a Tuesday morning, and I heard from somewhere way back in the line, Tyler Staten. It was Sunday. Not the day, that's his name. And he was one of those people that I'm pretty sure doesn't sleep and never really has to. He's just always so full of life. He's always loud in a good way. He's always laughing and hopeful and always, always fun, even at 4.45 a.m. on a Tuesday. And it turned out that he was on the same flight as me. I was flying to Chicago. He was flying to Texas by way of Chicago to visit his family. And it was Southwest, so it was a pick-your-own-seat situation. And so he and I got to sit next to one another on this flight. And I listened while he told me about this new job that he had just landed at J. Crew, which was his dream company. He was finally breaking into the fashion industry in exactly the company that he wanted to break in with. He was due to start when he got back, but he was just taking his last little free time to go and visit his family before he started. And so we land in Chicago. We got sandwiches together in the airport. And then I said, goodbye, man. Congrats again. See you back in New York. And then he got a headache while he was at his mom's house that weekend. And he laid down on the couch to rest. And he had a brain aneurysm. He wasn't coming back to New York. He was in a coma in some Texas hospital. 
But our community rallied. There's this little cafe in Long Island City that was right around the corner from his apartment, and they gave us their back room. And so every night of the week, we would gather there for healing prayer. Uh, every single night, people would come straight from work and gather in that room and just cry out again and again and again in every variety we could come up with, Jesus, spare Sunday's life. Jesus, wake him up. Because the life that he thought he was guaranteed, I mean, this guy was 28 Everything's future when you're 28. All of life is still out ahead of you. The life he thought he was guaranteed was suddenly hanging in the balance. And the life we thought we were guaranteed. Friends on an adventure in a city that only gets better with time was suddenly hanging in the balance, was interrupted in a way that we never thought possible. Sunday's gone, except for a machine. So we're praying, but it all honestly just feels like lobbing empty words up into a silent void. That is a Saturday story. And when you hear stories like those, I imagine that it drags up your own version of the same thing. Saturday's the day your plan dies. It's the day that you overdrew your account and don't have any other options. It's the day that you leave your boss's office to collect your things from your desk. It's the day she said she just couldn't do this anymore. It's the day the doctor decided to pull the plug. It's the day your secret was exposed. Everybody knows Saturday. Our whole lives happen on Saturday. So why a day in between? Why not just make every three-day story a two-day story? Because every day in this life is a day in between. Our whole lives in this form, on this side of eternity, are in between. Our whole lives happen on Saturday. Thomas Keating, who describes, who's a saint that describes a period of his own life where he suddenly felt as if God had abandoned him and just left him totally alone in a church pew, writes these words. In the dark nights, the rituals and practices that previously supported our faith and devotion fail us. Faith becomes simply belief in God's goodness without any test of it. It is trusting in God without knowing in whom we are trusting because the relationship we thought we had with God has disappeared. Everyone who has ever followed Jesus for any length of time knows what he's talking about. He's talking about Saturday. And so that brings us to Exodus. Exodus is the framing story for the Hebrew understanding of God's activity with his people when God miraculously delivered Israel from Egyptian slavery. Now that story is going to be remembered by people all over our city in just a few days through Passover. People are going to sit down around dinner tables. They're going to feast together. And someone's going to read that story over the table as a remembrance to say, this is who God is. And this is how God deals with us. It's beautiful. But we do tend to leave out the start of the story because Exodus doesn't start with God's deliverance. It starts with God's silence. 430 years. That's how long the opening scene lasts. 430 years. That's how long Israel waited on God's deliverance. 430 years or roughly 10 generations based on the life expectancy of the time. That's how long they prayed and hoped and waited with nothing but silence. Nothing but another day of forced labor as someone else's slave. So 430 years in, were there a few radicals that still had the audacity to believe that God is going to hear us and he's going to deliver us? Probably 
But the majority must have just been facing the facts. Look, we had a great run with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all that stuff, but Egypt's the only show left in town. So either God lost or more likely God was never there at all. We were just romanticizing his activity among our forefathers. The setting where God's saving work begins was among people whose primary experience of God was silence. Biblical scholars will point out that God is curiously absent from Exodus chapters 1 and 2 if you go back and read them. So right there in the opening scene of the Bible's second book, it's Saturday. Jump ahead to Jesus. The framing story for the Christian understanding of God's activity among his people is the incarnation, Emmanuel, God with us. It's Mary and Joseph and a baby born to a virgin, that story that we remember every December when we sit around tables and feast with friends and family and someone retells that story again and again and again as a way of saying this is who God is and this is how he deals with us. It's so beautiful but we also do tend to leave out the start of the story. That the incarnation doesn't begin with God's arrival, it begins with God's silence. 400 years. That's how long the opening scene lasts. There were 400 years between the end of the Old Testament, the last word of expectation spoken by the last prophet, and the arrival of God to make good on any of that expectation. That's 400 years, or again, roughly 10 generations, praying and hoping and waiting when all they're getting is silence. Their primary experience of God feels like absence. And so the setting where God continues his saving work of redemption among his people is one of silence. Right there on page one of the New Testament, it's Saturday. God's not afraid of silence. On Friday, Jesus was arrested on a false charge. He was accused, taunted, and mocked. Go ahead, defend yourself. Silence. Jesus offers no defense. He calls no witnesses. He retaliates to no taunt. And when finally there is an outburst from his inner being, he is hanging on the cross and he quotes Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if you were a Jew in the crowd observing the execution that day, you would have recited the Psalms in the temple since the day you were born, and you would know the next words of that prayer by heart. This is Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, but I find no rest. Jesus experiences the silence of God. Everybody knows Saturday. So what I'm trying to help you see is that the biblical story doesn't pull the rug over God's silence. It doesn't hide the experience of God's absence. It includes it. It even dignifies it. I mean, most of the Psalms are Saturday prayers. Psalm 22 gets all the press because Jesus quoted it. But here's a few other examples of the prayer book of the Bible. Why, Lord, do you stand so far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? Awake, Lord, why do you sleep? You get the point, I'm sure. 
but I'm going to keep going. I am worn out calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for my God. Oh God, why have you rejected us forever? Why does your anger smolder against the sheep of your pasture? All right, surely you're convinced by now. But just to be sure, why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? My eyes fail looking for your salvation. And there's more, but I'll stop there. So if the Psalms are meant to teach us how to pray, they teach us a whole lot about how to pray on Saturday, about how to pray amidst God's seeming absence. Eugene Peterson writes this, we need this. We need this validation that a sense of the absence of God is part of the story and that it is neither exceptional nor preventable nor a judgment on the way we are living our own lives. You see, the theme that emerges if you take salvation history into account is this, that the presence of silence never equals the absence of God. So, how long do we have to wait through silence to get to resurrection? Or, or maybe a better way to ask it is, how do we wait through silence to arrive at resurrection? What do you do on Saturday? Well, to borrow from John Ortberg, who, by the way, is really the starting point for most of what I'm sharing with you today. So if you want more on this subject, check out his book, Who Is This Man? But to borrow a few terms from John Ortberg, he says we really just have three options of how to live on Saturday. Despair, denial, or wait. So let's take those one at a time. First, there's despair. And this is apparently what was going on in Corinth in the early church. That was the church that Paul pastored longest. It was the people that he knew the best. And in his first letter to them, he asked them this question. How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? In other words, some of you have found comfort in denying the resurrection. Sunday's not coming. Life is hard. This is as good as it gets. And the sooner you accept that, the better. People who live in despair like to think of themselves as realists, but the truth is that they're just managing disappointment. The truth is more like this. God let me down before, and it's not a cute testimony for you to sprinkle into your sermon, man. It is personal, heart-wrenching pain. So no, I'm not opening myself back up to hope. Because living every day like it's Friday is better than expecting Sunday, and I'm not sure it's ever coming. So I gave up on praying that prayer or hoping for that blessing or believing that passage. And I'm not singing that line from that one song. I can't bear to pray for a companion another day. I can't be in a room with someone else that asks for healing. I can talk to God about anything except for the child that I want and don't have. Because hope means picking that scab. But it doesn't hurt so long as I don't look at it and try not to think about it. So I'm comfortable holding on to God. And maybe he is a God of resurrection, but don't make resurrection too personal. Don't bring it too close. God, you can come this close, but no further. See, denial is not shallow or cheap. It is deep and it is costly. Only those who have journeyed with Jesus through real pain have been hurt badly enough to make a home in their despair. But despair is a real part of the journey. But it's not forever. And you don't have to live there. So, of course, there's despair, but there's a second option, which is denial. 
So in Paul's second letter to Timothy, he describes denial, calling out a few misleading teachers. He writes this, Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have departed from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place, and they destroy the faith of some. So some people live in denial of silence and suffering altogether. They just skim over the hardest moments of faith with cheap answers. Like, it's already Sunday. There's resurrection and only resurrection. She didn't get healed? You must just not have enough faith. You'll find the right person as soon as you stop looking and really trust God. Just believe. Denial pretends it's all roses on this side of the cross. It keeps hope alive, but it does so by turning a blind eye to human suffering. And denial is also just a way to deal with our disappointment. Like, how do I square a God of unique personal love with the sweatshop that made my t-shirt? Or how do I square a God of presence with the loneliness that I'm left after my brother's funeral? How do I square a God of power with a virus that has brought the entire world to its knees? I'll deal with it by turning God into a formula. And if your experience of God is something less than resurrection, you just haven't learned to push the right buttons or to push them in the right order or to push them with the right force. See, despair holds on to a view of God but then keeps him at a distance. Denial keeps intimacy with God but reduces him to a technique. But there is a third option. We wait. In Psalm 27, David prays this way. Do not hide your face from me, and do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, God my Savior. That's not a prayer that's resolved. This is an in-between kind of prayer. It's a Saturday prayer. And yet in the midst of Saturday, this is how David ends this very prayer. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. I won't lose hope. I won't turn God into something less than altogether good. I won't push him away in the confusion of the moment. I'll invite him into it to show himself even here. I refuse to put a guard up to my creator. But I also won't pretend that pain is easy or simple. This is something much, much less than resurrection, and I will feel the pain of the current moment and scream out into the silence. But I know who God is, and I know that in spite of everything, I am precious in his sight. And so even here, even now, even in this, I remain confident of this, that I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. That's waiting. That's waiting in the biblical sense. And Pete Gregg offers some of the best, simplest advice on the biblical way of waiting. He says when you feel lost or God seems absent and you're tempted toward either despair or denial, ask not why, but where. In other words, the question should not be why God, but the question should always be where God. Where are you in this? Because I can't see you. Where are you with me? Because I can't feel you. Where are you right now? Because you seem a million miles away, so show me where you are. And Jesus, by his life with us, showed us that God can be found in urban slums or rural villages. He's in quiet gardens or chaotic court hearings. He's at parties and at funerals. He's in the temple and he's in the brothel. But Saturday means that God is also found in the grave. God can even be found in the grave. 
I mean, the Apostles' Creed goes so far as to say he descended into hell. That's based on 1 Peter 3 and Ephesians 4. Meaning Jesus did not take a nap in the tomb. He plunged into the realm of the dead. To borrow from John Ortberg one more time, if you can find this Jesus in a grave, if you can find him in death, if you can find him in hell, where can you not find him? Where will he not turn up? Luke chapter 24 trying to recover from the disappointment of God's apparent death. There's these two disciples that are just walking along to another city called Emmaus. And as they walk along the road, another journeyman joins them, and they start recounting all the trouble of Friday. And after the facts run out about what has occurred, the real deeper truth in their hearts surfaces, and they say this, we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Finally, Someone had the courage to say it. Jesus failed. Great guy, noble attempt, not who he said he was. God failed me, and I bought in, and so I'm devastated. You know what it's like to admit something like that? I had thought that God was going to do this, or be this, or deliver this, and silence is such a lonely sound. And so I'm left with no choice but to admit that God is apparently not who he says he is. But what these men on the road didn't know is that God himself was the other journeyman, that Jesus was the one walking with them in their disappointment. He was hidden from plain sight, or sorry, hidden in plain sight, just about to break through, just about to introduce them to the God who is even better than the one that they're grieving that they've lost. Jesus spent the first Easter Sunday listening to, identifying with the pain of his absence on Saturday, and restoring the faith of those who were waiting. When he was at table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were our hearts not burning within us while he talked with us on the road? So resurrection is a, is a startling miracle that didn't just occur in first century Jerusalem, but keeps on happening again and again and again. Resurrection happens to the lost and the disappointed, to the control freaks and the power hungry, to the image conscious, and those who are just trying to keep busy and distracted. But first, we have to feel Saturday. Because God only tells one type of story, and it's a three-day story. We don't get to bypass the middle. Before resurrection, there is absence, hopelessness, death of the God in our imagination, the God we fashion after our best intentions so we can meet the God of new life. God is more present and more good than you could ever imagine, but knowing that God includes silence, absence, and waiting. The thing about Saturday stories is that you just don't know you're in one until it's Sunday, until it's resurrection. Like that friend of mine who miscarried, she's still waiting. That story is unresolved. There is no ending yet. There is no breakthrough. And Luke and DeAndre, they worked through it, and they set a new wedding date, and I got to stand with them at the altar while they said their vows, and all three of us were weeping because it was resurrection, and it was too much to take in. And my friend Sunday, he, he never woke up. He never moved back to New York. He never started that job. I never got to speak to him again. 
and the healing prayers that we all prayed were never answered. So look, there are no guarantees this side of eternity. But because Jesus broke the silence of Saturday, because Jesus replaced absence with a warmer, more constant, more intimate presence called the Holy Spirit, because Jesus showed power over even the parts of this life that seem most final, death, every story is a Saturday story. Every story is just waiting on resurrection that's always coming tomorrow. Those prayers for healing were not answered. It's not that those prayers for healing weren't answered. It's just that they're taking a bit longer than the rest of us would have liked. Joni Erickson Tata, who was paralyzed from the neck down because of an accident that occurred on the beach when she was only 17, prayed for miraculous healing for more than 50 years. She attended every healing service. She had hands laid on her by every powerful preacher. She did everything she could to bring herself into the presence of God and will up enough faith. She was even the healing vessel. Through her prayer, she watched other people be miraculously healed. So she knew God heals today, but the healing she longed for, she died still waiting on. And very late in her life, looking back across all those decades of waiting, she said this, This paralysis is my greatest mercy. He has chosen not to heal me, but to hold me. The more intense the pain, the closer his embrace. And one day she is going to stand up from her wheelchair when heaven and earth finally meet, and she will dance with her maker a dance that never, ever stops. Resurrection's coming. Saturday's real. And we all know it. But absence always leads to presence, and silence is always broken by his voice. Sunday is the only day that lasts forever. And so we'll land here with the miracle of Saturday. You know, from our human vantage point, Sunday is the miracle day, right? Sunday is the supernatural day that transcends all earthly logic. But I wonder if From the vantage point of heaven, Saturday is the real miracle. I mean, from heaven's perspective, of course resurrection's coming, right? Of course death can't hold God. Of course love has the final word. But can you imagine heaven looking down to see God in a tomb? God, humble enough, gentle enough, patient enough to beat death by dying, to beat silence by enduring the silence of God himself. See, when we live on Saturday, we talk about the wonder of Sunday, but maybe one day when we live forever on Sunday, we will talk about the wonder of Saturday. A God who, choo- who would do all of that to choose us. I wonder if that is the real miracle. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, um, I ask right now that you would begin to speak in a personal way to everyone who's on the other side of this screen. Because when the church is scattered, you are not hindered in any way. You are everywhere all of the time. Your Holy Spirit dwells within every last person who says yes to you. And the Father is in 
constant pursuit like a good shepherd of all of his sheep. So you're not bothered by where we happen to be right now. And God, I'm sure that there are ways that many of us are choosing a posture other than waiting. I'm sure there are ways many of us are feeling the weight of Saturday. And so to all who are willing, we open ourselves up to you now. We invite you in. We make ourselves vulnerable to you and we say, please be gentle because I'm open, but I'm fragile. But taking a risk on you is better than continuing to play it safe. So you come, Holy Spirit, will you minister to your children?